Does the channel provide value? Focus on the foundation. I am a travel vlogger. It's always about communication. Build those partnerships. What are the problems that you solve for your clients? Just being ahead on the technological side of things. Leading an organization. You not only want to survive, but you want to thrive. thrive. They said it wouldn't last, and they said that you can't drive profitable and incremental revenue through the affiliate channel. But here we are, 20 years later, and the affiliate channel is alive and kicking and generating profitable revenue for thousands of retailers across the globe. Hi, I am Jamie Birch, your host of the Profitable Performance Marketing Podcast, where we talk to some of the industry's best and brightest about their careers, about leadership, and about how to drive profitable revenue through the affiliate channel. Well, hey everyone, welcome to the Profitable Performance Marketing Podcast. I am your host, Jamie Birch, uh, and CEO and founder of JB Commerce. I just had such a great conversation. I'm excited to record this intro. So today we actually, we speak with Josh Reed of Evenflow and Good Baby International, a client of JB Commerce. But before we dive into what today's episode is about, just want to let you guys know, as we do with every podcast episode, we are here to help. You can get help for all your affiliate marketing, your partnership marketing, and your content commerce marketing needs with JEB Commerce. And you can just email us at gethelp at jebcommerce.com. So you may be thinking now of what's going to happen in back to school and what's going to happen in Q4 and what you're going to do and want to make sure that you have a good system in place and and a way to know you're going to, you have all the pieces in place to do the right thing. So we have an audit and a roadmap service that we can offer you that will review everything about your affiliate program and give you the path forward to achieve your goals in 2022 and beyond. So if you're interested in that and finding out what you're doing and what you could be doing even better, just uh, email us at gethelp at jebcommerce.com. So today, my conversation that you are about to listen to is with Josh Reed. Josh is the Director of Consumer Demand Generation and Digital Shelf at Good Baby International. He's oversees the brands Evenflow, Cybex, and a few others. And Josh and Evenflow are a client of JB Commerce. So we've been working together for quite some time have achieved some success together and have a really good conversation that started with a, a little a little bit of humor that I did not pick up on. Uh, we talk about that right away, but I'm so glad that Josh and I got this time together. You're really going to get an MBA level course on marketing, high consideration products, the need for social proof, digital transformation, and affiliate marketing on this podcast. So you definitely want to give it a listen. Josh has a pretty incredible background, has worked at Hasbro, has been in some of the largest agencies, marketing agencies out there, started his career in communications, but has worked for Hasbro now, Evenflow, and quite a few other large brands and and like I said, big agencies and, and some small agencies, Clear Channel Radio, things like that. So lots of experience that I want you to listen to, but I'm just going to stop so you guys can enjoy my conversation with Josh Reed. Awesome, Josh. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Profitable Performance Marketing Podcast. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no, I've been excited to ever since I received a bit of sarcasm from your side on this enormous mic that's always in my face. <laughs> I can't help but when I see it now, I always laugh that I totally didn't pick up on your sense of humor during the call, but glad you're here. Absolutely. I guess there's it's one of those things of like there's a grain of truth to every joke. 
and uh, be careful what you wish for. It just might happen, right? <laughs> yeah. For our listeners, Josh was teasing me a bit of the professional podcast setup I have during a client kickoff call. And I turned it around. It's like, great, let's join. You should be on the podcast. So, Ed, here we are. Well, it's great. I, I've been wanting to chat with you and I know our listeners are real excited to hear your story. And for our listeners, you guys are a client of ours, been working with you for, for a couple months, doing some exciting things. But tell our listeners and, and myself kind of what's your origin story? How did you get into digital marketing? I, I've heard a little bit of it, and it's really, it's very interesting. Sure. So my, you know, I graduated from college in 2001, spring of 01. And it was sort of an interesting time to come out, right? Like we had just had the dot-com bust, you know, a lot of things were sort of being figured out. The term digital transformation was starting to become a thing. And I think my background, I went to college at a SUNY school in upstate New York, SUNY New Paltz for radio TV production and learned about two thirds of the way through that, that I was not necessarily well suited. While I love behind the camera work or behind the mic work, the production side of it wasn't sort of where my interest lied. I was more a little more curious about the business piece of it. Anyway, ended up graduating and really looking around for a job. My it was probably about halfway through my internship at ABC's Enhanced Television for Disney Internet Group it was this funny operation where sort of a digital startup that they had inside of Disney and they had rigged up a TiVo to read the time code on tape for master control at ABC and we could push content out in real time. And you used to be able to play Who Wants to Be a Millionaire in real time on the web over your you know, probably dial-up uh, connection at that point. And uh, it was a huge ratings winner. We did work. And the reason I was hired as an intern was actually to go through customer service backlog. Like it was a terrible, you know, sort of like slog of day-to-day internship. But if I did the work quick enough, I got to go down to the sets of these shows, make sure that we did promos, viewed a lot of tapes of, you know, shows that were going to be brought up at sweeps and tried to be sold in for the next season. Really interesting stuff. But one thing that was super transformative for me was that I watched Bob Iger fire my senior vice president about a month before I graduated from college and had a little bit of a reality check to say, oh, my gosh, like going into broadcasting, you know, which is really competitive. And there's a lot of students that go through and get communications degrees. You're going to need to do something a little bit different. And so in that, I my first job ended up being a one-man band marketer who replaced a person that had previously basically just been a secretary who sent out college catalogs in the graduate admissions office at a liberal arts college in upstate New York and like figured out how to do things like designed print ads, took pictures, wrote copy, made media plans, had real no idea what I was doing, but um, figured it out as I went. And I think that sort of created a little bit of a fire and sort of help to form the way that I generally operate today, still today, which is get interested in where things are not working, look for opportunities to do them. And on the days where you don't know what you're, what you need to be doing next, sort of make it up a little bit and test some things out and, and give it a shot and surround yourself with smart people and ask a lot of questions of people that know more than you. And so my pathway, you know, I worked in education for four years. Then I did digital transformation for clear what was used to be called Clear Channel Radio that's now iHeartRadio as they were bringing digital properties, think streaming and getting radio DJs how to blog and incorporate digital promotions on the website into their shows. And I did that for three different radio markets 
markets and uh, was living in upstate New York. And they're like, we want you to move to this other secondary market in another state. And I was like, you know what? It might be time for something different. Living in Poughkeepsie is career limiting enough. I think going to the Poughkeepsie of another state maybe wasn't quite the right thing for me. And so I actually threw, you know, again, dating myself on an AIM conversation with a high school friend who was at Saatchi and Saatchi in New York, told me about his colleagues in Boston. And I had always wanted to live urban. I grew up in upstate New York and and Boston was a good sort of entry city for me, right? And I'm, I'm still here today. But I went into the agency space, worked for Digitas on General Motors and Procter & Gamble business, worked for a few other agencies over the course of about 10 years with on brands, everything related to healthcare, pet food, MarTech, athletic shoes, a number of different brands and, and territories. And the thing that I've always tried to do through my career is to come at marketing from different angles. Retreading the same ground isn't super exciting for me. You know, so I try to like collect up and make sure that my tool bag is is ever increasing in terms of, you know, sort of what I bring to the table. But but I always want to sort of mix it up and do it different. So anyway. 20 years later, having started watching a corporate environment where one guy was getting fired by another guy, probably related to some politics that I won't go into in this podcast, I (laughs) am back on the client side, coming at marketing very low in the funnel from sort of from the bottom up working in an e-commerce go-to-market role. And so, you know, my day revolves around both acquisition strategy of both paid and owned media and experimenting with other programs like the success that we're building with you and your team in the affiliate space to thinking about first party data gathering and remarketing and efficiency and and all those sorts of things. And then also satisfaction and CX, right? What are the ratings and reviews like? What is the feedback that we're getting from the consumer? Where's all the friction in the commerce process? And so, you know, it's sort of, it's been a fun journey, but never sort of the same thing twice but obviously fully complimentary and and lucky that I came out in a period where there is no such thing where there isn't a digital aspect of marketing. Even when I was making, you know, print ads in 2002 for the Poughkeepsie Journal, you know, we were sending the files back and forth online and thinking about how my other touch points, my website, all those other things were sort of matching up, building CRM databases, qualifying leads, thinking about all those things. So it's been a fun journey, but definitely not linear. I, I, I call myself when I get in these conversations, a little bit of Donkey Kong, right? You, you don't go straight up the ladder. You go up one ladder, you run across, you go up the next one, you run back the other way and go up the next is sort of the way that is, has been my, in retrospect, I guess, sort of my MO. You know, I was just speaking to one of my employees who is around the same age. We all kind of started uh, I'm a little ahead of you to date myself, but uh, we well, all had that career. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Graduated from college. Here's the dot com, and now it's gone, and it's back, and it's it's. But one thing we were talking about is the difference in what we all had to do to figure it out, and kind of what new college grads are like. And and there may be a little a little bit of us back in my day had to walk uphill both ways in the snow to school, kind of uh, the the old vets in the space, but. Do you see, like, do you see that there's a, a commonality in, in what I heard in your, the beginning of your career and throughout it of like, we had to figure it out. There are problems to solve. I'm going to go solve it. I'm going to ask other people and try to bring in a lot of different information and solve it. Do you see like that initiative, that drive, is that different now or, or is it just the hiring market is such that it is? 
I think my perspective on it, and I'd be interested if you sort of feel the same way, but it's it's really where folks that came up around the time that we did are generalists by nature, right? Like the different aspects and and you know sort of programs and channels and things are so much more matured now that students who are coming out into the workforce, interning and and you know really. I don't think the people that are marketing are all just a little bit crazy, right? Like we love that frenetic sort of newsroom-esque mentality. But I think folks that came out and, and again, I wonder if you you experienced this too, but like we became generalists out of necessity and about because we were in this time of huge transformation in terms of communication channels when you're doing marketing. Now there's so much specialization and the education, whether it be practical or book education within the educational setting for, for folks coming out and coming up, they may be in a channel and become subject matter experts just in one lane, whether it be performance media, whether it be CRM, whether it be audience data composition, you know, obviously we have the influencer economy and those things and those dynamics you know, didn't exist, or they were all being tinkered with and played with and weren't fully formed around the time that, you know, that I came out into the working world in the very, very early 2000s. You know, I, I, I've been seeing things like, you know, you don't see sort of generalist marketing roles anymore. They're always very specialized. And, you know, and I think that that's, that both is maybe a little intimidating for me sometimes, um, but also really interesting because it forces you one to like really tap into subject matter expertise. And if you're hungry and curious and want to learn, even people that are way junior to you in terms of tenure probably have some level of really deep expertise that I don't get to touch every day, but know enough to be able to tap into. So I think that swing between sort of being this, you know, sort of matured generalist versus matured specialist in terms of career pathing is something that I see that's definitely different than it was. But, you know, the passionate, curious ones are the ones that, you know, generally win and that you really want to be working with most of the time. So that's often the advice that I'll give to give to people, you know, that whether they be alums from my college or, or others that I know. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I think that's one of the better answers to that question that, that I've received, the necessity to be generalist because everything was forming. And in a way, we had to figure it all out at the same time. And, and maybe we've paved the way a little bit. And, and it, like you said, it's matured to an extent where you can dive into one channel and, and get a lot of deep expertise in that, uh, in that channel. Yeah. So I appreciate your perspective on that. Now, you had an internship, and I think it was ABC. Yes. That you had. And I love the story of how you got the internship and all that. So it's one of my favorites. So tell me, tell tell us, our listeners and myself, this story of your internship. It's a little bit traumatic, but sure. So like, I think any good, passionate senior in college, basically, I wanted to orchestrate a world where I had to go to no classes my last semester of senior year. Like that was, <laughs> that was goal number one. Yeah. Not surprising, uh, but wanted to be back on campus by like four on Fridays to go out. So that was, was a thing. Anyway, so my <laughs> so my journey to internship and part of the reason that I went to a college because I you know I got in at Syracuse and Ithaca and I had gotten some decent financial aid packages, but I wanted to be closer to New York City. One to just be closer to civilization. I was born outside of Philly, moved to a very rural small town that was my mother's hometown growing up, and just wanted to have proximity to Manhattan and the city and and sort of life and things going on, and also a school that had connections. 
two different you know organizations. Anyway, my internship journey was a funny one because I knew that I wanted to basically be interning full 15 credits every day of the week, like get me off campus, let me go be doing practical things as far as resume builds. I There were two paths and what I ended up ultimately doing was spending three days a week working for a recently Clear Channel acquired 14 station radio cluster in Poughkeepsie in the Hudson Valley where I was going to school. And the other two days a week, I, and I was going to, it was either, you know, two or three days I was going to do the commute to the city. And this was back in the day when like major broadcast companies still had commissaries and had budgets for doing things like travel stipends. So, you know, being that I wanted to spend the little bit of money that I did have at the bar over the weekends, I was, I targeted big broadcast companies or things that had dot-com presence, but on the business side. And so my I first basically stalker called every different department that sounded of interest to me, but that a college professor had talked to me about at NBC. I didn't want to do the page program because it would have meant I needed to be in Manhattan five days a week. So instead, I looked for internship opportunities at NBC and called a number of different folks and randomly through like switchboard and persistence ended up getting connected to the woman that ran affiliate relations at NBC. And my internships were going to be in the spring semester, which is when when sweeps happen and when the upfronts are getting planned and all of that. And I was like, this would be amazing experience because it isn't just sort of like behind the scenes production assistance for one show. It isn't just sort of like sending out mailers, but like I would have been there during the cycle where I would have been able to participate and really be involved in that process. And I had my very good friend graduated a year or two before me and was working at CNBC and like, you know, had taken me to some upfront parties and like I had done that thing. I was like, oh, this is awesome. So I get this internship booked in, in like, I don't know, late October of my senior year. And then at that time, for those that follow the winding road that has been General Electric, GE owned NBC at the time. And they also were being held accountable by the state of New York to dredge the Hudson River in Schenectady and some of the surrounding areas in the Capital District in upstate New York to take care of PCBs and a lot of other contaminants that they've been dumping in the Hudson for 100 years. And as a corporate cost-saving measure, and they were consolidating office space within 30 Rockefeller Plaza and slashing and burning um, budgets that <laughs> that went to fund things like travel stipends and paid internships. Wow. And so I got word about two weeks before Christmas that my internship was gone and oh, sorry and had to scramble. And my other contact that I had made and another internship that I had interviewed for was with Disney Internet Group which had been formed during the go.com era of the late 90s and had all just sort of gone over the cliff, lemmings over the cliff, and uh, had interviewed and had good interaction with them, but didn't end up getting an internship through them and did a little dialing up on like the 28th of December, you know, dial up internet and was looking for internships and something popped up at ABC. And so I called the HR woman at Disney Internet Group. She's like, oh yeah. She's like, that just popped up the other day. It's a new thing. and like I said, the internship was is that they needed someone to move abc.com. There was only one checkbox at the time that had the word ABC in it on the like customer service email capture page. And so all email having to do anything with NBC. So we're talking about like people complaining about Bill Maher and Politically Incorrect, people submitting their headshots, oh, everything, probably 
I don't know, 5,000 emails a week were coming just to the inbox of ABC's Enhanced Television, which was this web-based interactive play along that we did with Monday Night Football and stuff. So I went and slaved away, got through that email backlog in the course of about two months of my internship and spent a lot of time on the floor. But like total, just like kismet persistence and, you know, willingness to do grunt work. And they paid for my train back and forth to Manhattan, which, you know, in itself, you know, there's, I never knew that people like partied on Fridays on the train, on the two hour train back and forth to New York. It was, it was an education from all directions. That's fantastic. And the, the first internship that, that ended up not getting, I love the story of, of your persistence in, I'm going to, I'm going to call all these people and not HR because I don't want the page program. I want to do something different. I, my, my dad always taught me if, if you're trying to get work, just call and ask for accounts receivable. And then you'll get someone in accounts receivable. And then you say, I don't know why they sent me over to you. Can you send me to, uh, you know, Emma, the head of marketing? And they would always go, yeah, that's weird. And they just send you over. And it worked both of our careers. It worked so many times. It gets you past the gatekeeper. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Yeah. Things I learned from Ed Birch. That's awesome. And so now... When you were a one-man band, you were still in communication, still in radio, right? Was it difficult to take that step to go to agency where now you're seemingly were uh, taking a, a risk and going completely away from you know what you had gone to college and what you thought you were going to do? Was that difficult? Sure. I think, I mean, I walked through it. I think I've always had, I've always had the attitude that no matter sort of where you are, and I probably didn't have this perspective at the time, right? So I'll, I'll put it out there. It was definitely intimidating, right? Like going and interviewing in the big tall glass building with the fabulous office at the big at the big shiny ad agency that only dealt with blue chip clients. Like, absolutely. That said, right? I had, had the way in that I had was was using my network, and like I met a guy for coffee that was a colleague of this old high school friend of mine, right? So like that sort of took the air out of it a little bit. And the thing that I've learned, and I think that I embraced without really knowing it, and again, being, you know, I bought, I I like bought the good suit finally for that interview and all these pieces is that like, no matter where you are and how big the brand you're working on is, your immediate team is always going to be small and you're going to be needed to do, you're going to need to embrace the gray and do things that aren't, you know, aren't necessarily in your job description, right? Like duties as assigned is a flexible part of your job description, right? And so I just approach things from a place of being super curious, probably to the point of annoyance. My colleagues will have to answer that for me, but but asking smart questions. And that's both in terms of to convey opinions or hypothesis or to pressure test an idea or to get a point across. And so I think because I had worked on those big you know, I worked for a big blue chip corporation, right? You know, for the Mickey rat way far down on the totem pole and saw those dynamics. And so, and I knew how I had gotten there, which was through that lens of sort of curiosity and interest. And even though I'm not always the best at uh, acting humble, I I am actually pretty humble. So I don't know. Those are, (laughs) those are some of the thoughts I have on that one. Where does that come from for you? I, People who listen to the podcast probably have heard me say this a thousand times. My family was always weird. We always talked about business. My my father and my mom, both of them in leadership, 
multiple manufacturing organizations. And so that was kind of a topic around the dinner table was all things logistical and management and all of those. We were weird. That's where a lot of that for for you, like this ability that and what you said, embrace the gray. I love that. And, and not that mine. I wish it was mine, but it's a good line. It's so it's so good. Where does that come from for you? Is that just an internal thing that you have or it's a couple of factors because I my growing up was not definitely not what you just described so you know I have a a pretty large family a little bit lopsided my dad's side of the family is much larger than my mom's side of the family and in many family gatherings like there's that element of like to be heard you have to pipe up right so I think that's that's probably an undercurrent of it two was is that I I'm like your typical joiner and just like game to try things, even when I'm not comfortable. And probably as I get a little older, I'm not necessarily <laughs> as as ballsy as I used to be. I think that that's just an element of it. My Neither of my parents, who are both wonderful, they're not together. They haven't been together in 30 years, but like they, they did not have advanced degrees or advanced education. And I knew that I just wanted to sort of do some different things and try to work as hard as I could to like sort of build a little bit beyond some of the challenges that they had and see if I could make a way for myself that I didn't have some of those, those challenges. And, you know, and they both been successful in their own ways, but I hadn't, you know, that, that sort of sense of things wasn't sort of immediately there and put in as an expectation. And I had wanted to just move out of that small town, go and see what I could create for my own, you know, in college, you know, I mean, I was, I was like the student rep on the faculty Senate and like did search committees for provosts and was the general manager of our radio station. Like I had a 50, you know, whatever it was, $60,000 budget and 200 students working for the radio station as the station manager by my sophomore year of college. So like, it was just one of those things, right? Like, I, I have opinions. I really love to work with different people and do different things. And so I try to let that curiosity, you know, sort of uh, keep, keep prodding me along. And so, you know, even now, right, like doing uncomfortable things and embracing that gray of like, okay, paid media isn't going to be the only channel that we can use, you know, to, for, for success. I, we've got to diversify the different way that we do acquisition in e-commerce for my company. I have a high consideration category with a longer purchase you know, purchase consideration cycle than cars. Like, what are we going to do different, right? Let's tinker with affiliate. Let's talk about referral. Let's think about really find, like fighting for the resources for hands-on keyboards to do CRM and get at first-party data and remarketing in efficient ways, right? Like, even when you're running a great efficient program, doing things a little bit differently is just sort of where I'm generally at. When I worked on Procter & Gamble business, one of my favorite things to do, because I I have a state school degree in broadcasting, no MBA, but where I was able to get to in terms of like, I worked for, you know, for Digitas, we had a lot of big blue chip clients. The, the amount of diversity of thought I was able to get from within my peer group in the agency was great. But like, I, you know, Proctor's hiring MBAs out of Duke, you know, and didn't know anything about digital marketing, right? I have a sign on my desk, which I should probably bring and show you, but like this is digital isn't magic. And digital isn't magic was the line as an account manager that I would say to sort of put the pin in all the big ideas and ambitions of freshly minted Ivy League MBAs to say, no, this is how we're going to come at this, right? We're going to look at where the friction is. We're going to see what people are pissed off and, and hate about either our products or our service layers or how it is to buy them. And we're going to fix all those things. 
So it's just, it's a matter of approaches. I love that. And do you think curiosity can be taught? Do you think they could pick um, that up? Yes. But I think it's, it's probably an element of carrots and sticks, right? Like proving the value of it, modeling it, having people around you who either are your managers or your peers, you know, and you sort of see how, how natural curiosity or how a desire to, in a friendly way, right? I, there's no way I could ever survive in some sort of like hyper quant, you know, finance firm, you know, where they're just like beating each other up, right? Like I am, I am an only child of divorce, right? Like there's no one on earth that wants a little bit more pat on the back and positive reinforcement than my, my type of person that I am. But Right. Like being able to both demonstrate and have people around you who are willing to unpack how things worked and 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 create a space for you to ask and answer questions, I think is, uh, you know, is probably just the set of things that I've taken advantage of and that I've tried to always, you know, provide space for others in terms of, you know, people that worked with me or for me. Well, as a middle child who always wants to be seen, I totally get everything you just said. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's awesome. One thing you mentioned was central casting. Look at that. Yeah, yeah. Are you enjoying the show this far? We cover so many different strategies and stories on the podcast. Sometimes it can be difficult to keep up. We get it. It's why my team and I compiled the very best strategies, and we counted 20 of them, in affiliate marketing programs and put them together for you so you can assess the health of your affiliate program and be able to optimize it for the best possible results. You can get that guide at jbcommerce.com strategies. In the guide, we go over how to address your commission structure, your coupon strategies, 10 questions you need to ask to identify strategic opportunities, the many ways you can utilize your affiliate partners to react and pivot rapidly to our ever-changing ecosystem and so much more. Now, I want you to be able to access these strategies 100% for free simply for being a listener of the show. Get access to them today at jebcommerce.com strategies. Now, back to our show. So you're at Evenflow now. You mentioned earlier the high consideration products are different. Uh, in terms of marketing and acquisition needs. Talk to me a little bit about how that is different than, than you know, products and categories that aren't so long of a cycle. Sure. And I think this, like the perspective that I have in this is that I've been, and you know, thank God for the agency piece, right? Like I, I hit a point working on the agency side where like, okay, the, as you move up the ladder, you hit this point where you're either in or you're out because you will end up in a place where you just have more P&L ownership than practitioner What in terms of what your day balance looks like, which is why I sort of moved out of professional services. But that time was so valuable for me in terms of perspective, right? I worked over, I worked at three agencies, two large ones, one that was more consultant based, one that was more sort of traditional marketing agency, but really digitally focused. And one that was a boutique shop that melded digital and physical together. Anyway, I worked on General Motors business was the first engagement that I had when I came into the agency space. Lead acquisition, right? Personalization, lead acquisition, feeding the dealer network, big brand advertising, again, just for awareness, showing off that vehicle, learning what a beauty shot is, building your communication around that, but all in the effort of lead gen, 
right? Second biggest purchase you're going to make in your life. Like it's, it's a meaty one in terms of a business challenge and a category to work on sort of early, you know, it was really still early in my career. Then I go after General Motors had their unfortunate 2008, 2009 trajectory. I was actually the last man on earth to work on the Pontiac brand. And oh, then, wow. and then uh, fled to the safety of toothbrushes to Oral-B toothbrushes for Proctor for two years. The thing about Oral-B toothbrushes, I was like, okay, yes, safety. Everything's good here. Big business, over 40 countries. Everyone needs a toothbrush. But the largest thing that we probably disproportionately spent time on was electric toothbrushes. The consumer behavior is that you get two free toothbrushes a year from your dentist. You should change them for, but most people just use them for six months till they get another free one. But we're going to try to sell you a $150 piece of electronics that's Bluetooth connected to put in your mouth. And like, you know, so that that category two with like high consideration, need to meet needs, need to credential things, need to, you know, where the the good housekeeping seal actually isn't really worth the hill of beans. It's that social proof element that was is really needed. And, you know, and, and an organization like Proctor, where they have such a well-formed engine for how to develop communications, for how to build media plans and how to do it, all of which has been blown up and completely reinvented since around the time that I worked on those businesses in 08, 09. And then, you know, I worked on toys and athletic shoes and some other things. So I come here and there's two things that you're responsible for when you have a child. You need a woman who's ready to give birth and you have to, in every state in the union, you have to bring an infant car seat to the hospital. So it's a loaded category, right? Safety is underlies all of it, but is not the most fun, right? The probably one of the most fun things you get to do and everybody's the way that they come to parenting is a different journey. None of them are necessarily easy, seamless, or like mentally light all the time. You know, but one of the most thing, fun things people get to do is to shoot that gun in the store to make their registry, right? And so mm-hmm. it's the dynamics and the behavior where you're like, okay, I want the safest option and the best thing. It has to be affordable. I want it to look really good. I want to be able to, you know, and I need to demystify it because I'm getting bombarded. It's like the SATs and getting pregnant are like the two where just like DR comes at you at such a high rate of speed. And so the, and I don't know, hopefully you, I think you get that reference, right? You take the PSAT and then they send you all this oh, probably yeah, yeah. doesn't happen anymore, but you used to get like stacks of direct mail from oh, all yeah. the colleges yep. back in the dark time. Remember the 90s? Yeah. When we had mail and SATs counted. And <laughs> SATs counted. Yeah. They say it's coming back. I don't know. We'll see. Who knows? But anyway, so that journey is very winding, right? Like you've got like unsolicited advice coming from every angle. The bump is coming at you. Baby, listen, every, you know, all that stuff is coming. And there's a ton of emotion weight with all that advice, right? Everyone knows exactly what you should do to keep your child safe. I, I should look like, I don't know if anybody's ever done like a good, like sociology study on this. Right. But like, there is that thing. And I, I'm a parent of two and I've experienced it and I'm half of a two dad family. So we get a disproportionate share of unsolicited advice, especially when our kids were babies. Yeah. But the there must be something in here, right? Like in P- and I, I'm on a podcast, so I need to not talk about the visuals. You know, that sort of gets delivered to you in terms of the pressures of parenting around you. You right, exactly. You have to make the right choice. You have to feel like it's right for you. It, it, then you have like functional needs of like I I'm going to be in and out of the car four times a day, or you know I'm going to do drop offs, but you know my partner's going to do pickups, or grandma's going to pick up three times a week. Like, what do those logistics look like, and what do I need to equip that consumer journey. 
And so all these things get wrapped up into, yeah, being really a high consideration product. The other thing is, is that, you know, I yearn for the days of there being a normalized replenishment cycle in this space in durables and any category of durables, but, but inherent here, cause I'm working on baby goods of strollers, car seats, those sorts of things. They are completely predicated on one need state, right? Like you might have your full size stroller and then you're going to need your travel stroller. Cause you realize like this hulking thing doesn't fit in my car. If I also want to do a target run and have everything still fit for me. But the other piece is, is that you, every child is different, right? They all come out with their in different percentiles. So they grow at different rates. And so it, as a marketer, we need to, you've got still have so much coming at you all the time, right? You have the child and then like feeding and baby fashion and all the other stuff, all the soft goods sort of come at you, but without a rate, without any need for really a replan cycle, like I, I, my brand has enough breath where I can sell you things from, from birth to probably about age 10. But the, the time between those phases, it varies widely for birth. There's you know, an infant car seat in your primary stroller, three or four months down the road, they can pick their head up. They can do some activities. I can put them in an extra saucer or doorway jumper. Then you get like that. Your arm starts to break depending on how big they are when you carry that bucket car seat around and you need to move to the next thing. So we, from a data perspective, and we can, this proves out and is the thing that we work on a lot today is like, let's keep the opt-out rate down. Let's nurture and help people. Let's keep them involved in our brand to some degree so that we can take advantage of a remarketing cycle. And so those are the things that are really difficult, right? Like bringing in qualified traffic that is thinking, you know, that is putting people in the right mindset to be open to the solutions that we're bringing to make sure that the products that we're selling are super as for value for the dollar, have as much function as possible and of high quality and are, that are sort of brag worthy. And that is a big shift for the brand that I work on, which was a OPP only brand until about five years ago, and now is a much more blended portfolio. So it's been a lot of fun to come to an organization that's in the midst of some change and some evolution and to have, you know, now a core set of products that are that are so popular that we really have the right and the confidence with consumers to go back into remarket to them and hopefully ha- work on what, and we're still trying to figure out what is, what is the sort of lifetime value proposition that we can bring to the table in terms of not having everything sort of be a transactional one and done sort of thing. So some really interesting challenges and we're, you know, it's funny, you invited me on the podcast and the only thing that I can think of in my mind is like, we are so early in all of these cycles that I have no qualification to talk about any of this stuff, but obviously there's probably some people that are also in the same boat who are pretty early days. Yeah, oh, but, yeah. And think about these things; they're, they're they can be pretty heady. So you know, it's just trying to move whether we move an inch down the field or a mile down the field every week. You you can predict plenty of things. You never quite know. But that's that's sort of what we're trying to do these days. Yeah, and one thing you mentioned was social proof, and and wanted to get your oh, perspective yeah. on that. Like, do you think that's growing just outside? Like, one for high consideration products mm-hmm. that has definitely always been important. Do you see that expanding to other areas, or, or its importance increasing in a product category like Evenflow? Like Evenflow has, yeah, I would say without a question, right? I think the social proof to me is. I call it the democratization of the good housekeeping seal, right? Like it used to be that you had traditional media and there were these sort of like stamps of approval that this is a good choice. 
Mm -hmm. right? And in the influencer economy and in the sort of content creator world that we're in, and with so many of the major publishers having both their pure play editorial side and then their, you know, sort of affiliate revenue driven, still highly valuable content, but like that whole content marketing world. It, it helps a lot of people call down choices, right? Like an element that we have on our website is a, is a product recommender tool. And it's surely there to not tell you the thing, but to narrow your options down to like to a couple places to start because we realize you're coming in overwhelmed, right? If I can add to that before you get to me, a layer of generating sort of qualified traffic, but interest in our brand because someone has talked about it and saying that it's a viable option, right? Or putting it on a top 10 list or again, wanting wanting to keep really pure about it, right? Like so many brands and the brand that I work on, I've been very lucky in that the social proof program that I inherited when I walked in the door had been well managed, right? There hadn't been a lot of gamesmanship with trying to pump up the ratings or just pump up the volume of, of ratings and reviews. It, you know, we, we have really strong standards around holding you know, and only cross-propagating reviews at the trim level so that there's a, con- it's just across our, our key variants that all share the same DNA and we're not trying to sort of just inflate the numbers. And so in thinking about traffic and thinking about UGC in general, like I take the long view of saying that social proof is one, it's the thing that helps you to hopefully codify a decision one way or the other based on how many people have have had an experience with that product if those experiences are like mine and the thing that I'm trying to solve, but also to make sure that your products are not only on re- on your own or on retailer websites, right? Like you can't have a product that the only place that it exists is at retail anymore, especially for high consideration products, right? Maybe some $10 makeup that a few people say is cool and an Instagram picture will do it. But in a lot of hard lines categories, like I need to be able to find things on the internet that are not just the brand talking and consumers are savvy enough to know, you know, I think there's that big annual study that Kantar and Catalyst do with that. They've done the last few years of like a tracking study. And I think the last stat that I, it's like 60% of all folks start their journey on a retailer PDP. So you need to treat that as if it's your website and think of it in terms of the level importance and the level of sort of uh, order of operations. So social proof needs to be there, but it also needs to be out in other places. And I think creators and editorial outlets and, you know, all those things play in just as much. It probably was a hell of a lot easier when you could just pay whatever it was that Good Housekeeping wanted you to to throw the seal on your box. (laughs) And that was all you needed. And it's just it's it's not that anymore. But it's also not just about, you know, having an influence or having a cute picture online. I talk often and, and make a joke around the fact that my the category that I'm in is, you know, it's one of the two internet's favorite things is either kittens or babies. And we are so lucky to have one of 50% of the internet's favorite things <laughs> aligned <laughs> with our category. But it can make you a little bit complacent if you're not careful. And so social proof is the antidote to that. It adds the context. Don't just take my word for it, right? Remember reading Rainbow in the 80s, right? Don't just take my word for it. Yeah, you yeah. Know, here's all the kids that thought that this was great too. Yeah, yeah, super, super important, especially with the intersection of uh, PR, influencer, social, and affiliate. Now it's Absolutely. becoming even even more important this commerce economy. So, talk to me a little bit. Where does the affiliate channel fit with what you guys are doing? How do you view it? 
the starting place that, you know, sort of the itch that we were scratching strategically and leaning into affiliate was really about generating qualified traffic in D2C. So D2C, as with many brand manufacturers, is a certain percentage of focus within the organization, right? We deal with plenty of consumers who have bought our products from a myriad of different places. But the main way that we were acting direct with them historically has been in the consumer care area, right? I've got a problem. I've got an issue. I need a thing. You know, more and more it's growing where we're helping them with demystifying things during a sales process. But if we're going to start to think about the full CX arc and how to knit all the elements together, obviously D to C is a great place to one, have the fully controlled peak experience of product content and information, and then subject matter expertise, the things that around which we want to take and, and build our brand equity. And then the second part of that is, hey, we'll, you know, we'll, having those direct sales are a really helpful signal to us around what is sticky, what is interesting, and, and maybe even you know, be a predictor around what, we, what our overarching you know, retail strategy may want to look like. So in that, and being that the legacy touchpoint for direct-to-consumer contact wasn't sales, but was service, we have an, a, a business challenge around needing to grow traffic of, that was sales oriented, right? That was at least product researchers, but buyers too. Well, we're happy to have the buyers in that channel. And so affiliate for us was, was about diversifying from the one trick pony of paid media. And obviously there's so many ways that you can use paid media now and targeting and all those things. But, you know, we've got a number of different programs in the portfolio now and we look at what are the most productive conversion rates and then we talk about okay how do we take this experiment and start to like codify it put it into as much shape as possible and really see really actually go out and test the horse on the track and see how much speed we can and productivity we can get out of it and so that's really what led us to you know we we propped up a an instance of a um, of an affiliate portal service a couple of years ago, obviously mostly coupon driven stuff, a few little other dribs and drabs, but really highly converting. Okay. We need to fully form a program. We need to get aggressive for a while and really diversify the ways in that we're bringing people and then look for those pockets of opportunities. So whether it's creator, whether it's coupon, whether it's uh, major publisher, advertorial type work, whatever it might be. And also just for, for diversity of thought, right? Like what are ways what are ways to also fund additional marketing activity, doing it in a proportional way with affiliate versus all of it being CPM based on the front end was also attractive just to, again, new muscles to exercise as we think about diversifying how we work and looking for pockets of opportunity, right? I would be more than happy if we had like three well-formed, like micro-target personas that could triple our growth. But we're, you know, we're a general market brand and we have big ambition and we're having a lot of fun trying things and trying to delight the consumer with highly functional products. Now I need to match that with highly interested folks. If they don't buy from me, totally fine. I get it, right? Like so many choices out there. We just want to put our best foot forward, say why even flow at every touch point, both on the ways that you come inbound before you get to us and as well as when you get to us. And then hopefully we'll be privileged enough to be able to win a second sale from you down the road as uh, as baby grows. So when you look at success, you're looking at qualified traffic. Are you also looking at mind share of the brand? Too. 
Yeah, 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 definitely revenue, right? That's understood. This is a performance marketing podcast. (laughs) Do you measure sort of that sentiment or do you try to of of how they view Evenflow? Maybe if they came through the affiliate channel or another channel and then didn't make a purchase, is there a way you capture that or is that not so much? We'll, We'll capture that when they make a purchase later. There's certain elements of it. I think there's natural curiosity around measurement of all sorts of things. I think we have tried to do measurement in a progressive, not like politically progressive, but like in a one building block at a time way so that we aren't constantly begging for information and needing to opt in for everything else, but instead look for signals of success. And then in order to refine that success, starting to measure a little bit more, right? So like we're in a fairly early phase of growing the affiliate program. We're looking at success primarily based on productivity of traffic sent and where those pockets are most productive. We do within our within our ratings and reviews program, we have a tool where I find equal weight and value to, to three different aspects of my social proof program, right? Retailer Q&As, which I have on my site and we have it outside retail and our consumer care team is answering every day. Those are the things that tell us what we've not done a great job with presenting to you in terms of product content and is an area to refine and to drive CRO, right? To drive conversion rate optimization. Very early in my career, when I was working in agency, I guess not super early, but you know, on the earlier side, earlier than now, my boss was like, your job as a senior associate is to do nothing but make sure that the customer service phone number never rings, right? Which is really what marketing is. Give people what they need to know, where they need to know it so they can make a confident purchase decision and that you set up expectations that they're satisfied when they buy the thing and it hits their doorstep. In that case, it was, you know, it was American automobiles, but I think it's something that's easily transferred to every category, right? And it's something that I instill, especially in employees who are really tactically focused is what are the things that you can do to tell people what they need to know and set expectations up so that they are overjoyed. So Q&A is the front end. We have a tool where at checkout in our D2C channel, we ask you why you bought it, right? There's this moment and it's seconds long where I've researched the thing, I figured it out, I made the purchase. I can be asked and have the headspace before, thank you, supply chain, or the fact that FedEx doesn't always send enough trucks every day to pick up or whatever it might be, right? That, you know, there's that potential and it's where you don't try to shrink it every day, but like the item might not ship on time. They may, the box might be bruised by the time it gets to you, right? Or maybe you just, you're not the most satisfied because you didn't quite understand what you were going to get, right? But that moment where you hit the, hit the buy button and you put in the credit card information that's on its way. And before you've started to even get the notifications where you can say, why did you buy this item and get what we think is probably the most truthful answer you're going to get from anybody. That is a newer signal that we're taking in that I really love. And then obviously we have the in-depth feedback of a product review, where even if people don't write a review, we do ask them for their star rating. And then we ask them to star rate on a couple of different aspects, ease of use, look at the item, comfort of child, things like that. And so we try to take from those three, that sort of pre, at, and post to either sort of build a, a fuller picture or to figure out sort of where we need to action things. Do you see you like tracking that by channel later? Like looking to see if that those things are their entry point has any impact on that? Well, I mean, 
We'll be able to do that in some of our direct channels, not all of them, right? But you know, there's such limitations across the whole spectrum of retailer partners that we work with in terms of how they share data. So there's a lot of assumptions that we make, and I think we try to take things as signals and then prove them out more widely. But definitely interest, of course, in our direct channels to be able to sort of take those things in. I think the other is going to be as we continue to mature our digital marketing stack, our ability to collect touchpoint data and satisfaction data from that awareness to shopping, to purchase, to first-time usage, to ongoing ownership and support, and then people's willingness to do referral marketing or to, to go and repurchase themselves. Like There will be some high-level measures in terms of that arc of productivity and how good we're retaining that will probably come, and then we'll get into more discrete stuff. But again, we're trying to build something and get it in the market before we over-optimize it before we've even put it out there. Or at least that's my general stance on things. As a marketer, I'm interested in this from you, right? Like my number one passion as somebody who is in marketing is to put something out there and see if people love or hate it, to see if it's useful, to see if it's helpful. I love the aspect of like, let's not get ahead of ourselves and analyze everything. Let's do these building blocks and get through it and learn and, and build. That's it at the upfront, like establishing what your measures of success are, right? Everybody... People throw around KPI a lot. I like to actually use the term measure of success and to really differentiate between like what the measure is and then what we the goal or what we hope the measure to be versus just like, let's throw some KPIs at it. I don't know. It's just for me, I, I, I like to be a little bit more thoughtful and be careful to not overly burden at least first time out, right? We can always refine and get more detailed and ask more questions and 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 whatever else. But like the real the real proof ends up being in the transaction and in the conversion rate and in the stickiness of and interest that people have in content. So those are sort of things that I see as the first measure of success. You know, a bit of curiosity into the measure of success over a number. You know, defining what's behind it. Yeah. Love it's that. become such a thing, right? Like, got to have the scorecard. Yeah. And some people, you know, like they spend more time on the deck slide than maybe like what the, what the signal is and how they do it. I've probably driven some of our analytics folks crazy, right? Like I really love to not just have a dashboard or piece sent to me. And part of it just because I'm more, probably more qualitative than I am quantitative. And I sucked at math in all through school and whatever else. But that like great math course that I somehow got myself into freshman year to like check the requirement box where like you learned what zip codes meant. That's as far yeah. as I'm broadcasting I that was too. right in my wheelhouse. <laughs> but the <laughs> but the way that I like to take in the measures is to sit in a room and actually like have them presented and talk through them yeah. to think about the human behavior piece of it versus just what's the red box versus the green box, right? To see if we are taking the information in the same, if we feel like we're unified on what the signal is and what the next steps are. And I think everybody wanting to have their measures is obviously good for sort of organizational health, but sometimes are taken for granted. And like I said, I'm driven by wanting to just get good work into market. So I like to be able to like look at numbers and have some real reflection and get on the same page with folks about, okay, what are we going to do with this? Yeah. And I would think having a qualitative mindset is super important in an area where so much is trackable and we have so much data available to us. And that's some of the mistakes I made early on in my career is relying solely on the data with any, any sort of behavior. 
and just looking at that data. I, I remember many meetings where I come in and this is what the numbers say. And in a heartbeat, other people are like, you're completely wrong. This is why we're moving this direction. But Which is a would, great lesson to learn, right? Like if you're not careful, oh yeah. like you can have a great conversion rate, but if you're only converting five people a day, you're going to be in a rough spot pretty quickly. Yeah. And I've had big debates on that with plenty of people over the years. Some of it related to my lack of comfort or the fact that I always just try to infuse, even if I'm wrong, I usually will like have a perspective to like pressure test and just put a stake in the ground and have a discussion about where, yeah, I mean, it's certainly an approach and it's not necessarily a wrong approach to like start from the numbers, but only over time and with breadth of experience and a good amount of failure, can you wrap the numbers in some perspective, generally speaking. Into a story, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we got a few minutes left. You talked about bringing subject matter experts like our team at JEB Commerce. Why do that instead of hire an internal team? I would say the reason that I like, well, you know, I have, I see the value in agency because I was there, right? The joke that I have anytime that I'm working with or speaking to a potential partner is to put a little bit of a pin in the sales process and make the joke when I'm clearly being solution sold, I like to make the joke that I know that I'm being solution sold because then we can all sort of get on the same page. But my, my thing with working with agencies and smart agencies and folks who at least have had an understanding of my category, my business challenge, isn't even so much that they are skilled practitioners, like they wouldn't have a business that has any clients if that, that didn't exist. But it really is from drawing on the diversity of thought and the diversity experience that comes actually from the client portfolio of that agency. I know what my competitors are doing to the best degree that any of us ever can. I don't need to just retread that ground or hear validation of like what I'm doing is great. I really have a huge appreciation for like what the best practice is or where everybody else has fallen down before I showed up on the scene so that we can not do those things, right? So it was something that I tried to do when I was an account manager early on when I was working in the agency space. You know, I started as like a senior associate and we had these like level meetings where all of us, you know, there were probably in our office in Boston, we're probably like 45 senior associates. We worked across, I don't know, probably 20 to 30 different businesses in different categories of different sizes. Amazing ideas, concepts, failures come out of that conversation and help you to navigate and be smarter with your clients. So that's always what I try to, one, look for, ask for, and if I'm not always getting a drive out of any conversation with a with an outside partner or subject matter expert. Awesome. Well, Josh, this has been an MBA level hour on marketing and all of this. I have I have really enjoyed this. I'm so glad I didn't catch the joke way early on about the mic and we were able to have this time. This has been fantastic. Thank you for joining me today and all the, the different topics we discussed. If someone wants to continue this conversation with you, what's the best way for them to connect? Oh, probably LinkedIn would be the easiest. I'm a, I'm an ultra lib and have just gotten off the Twitter at this point. So <laughs> that's probably the easiest way would be to look for me, Josh Reed, R-E-E-D on LinkedIn. And I work for Evenflow. We make all the things that your baby or the baby you know might need. So hit me up. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so Absolutely. much. Enjoy thank the rest you so of your much day. for the Appreciate time and the time. opportunity. This was a lot of fun. Hopefully some of it was helpful for somebody. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. Josh, thank you so much for taking an hour out of your busy schedule 
to spend some time with me. It's always good to sit and chat with a veteran of digital marketing going back back to the day. So much that we talked about loved. You know, for our listeners, I want you to if you're you're looking at your career and you're you're wondering what to do, I want you to hear a couple of things that Josh said. You know, both Josh and I, state school, no MBA, still was able to have really good careers. And it was that passion and curiosity. And what I loved is, and you know, it wasn't Josh's, but it's so great. Embrace the gray. Those things that duties as assigned and on small teams, you have to do more than just what your primary role is. And if you're, you're thinking about your career and where it's going, definitely think about that. Are you bringing curiosity and passion to the role? Are you to your clients, to your position, to your team? And are you embracing the gray things that may not really be assigned to any one person? Are you embracing that going and accomplishing them, learning about them? So there's a bunch in there that really drew me in as far as Josh's work ethic and, and, and how he navigated his first bits of his career and making changes from being a one-man band to going to an agency, something that would be, I know my first, you know, really big job, uh, super intimidating walking into there and making that decision. I often look back on my career choices and think, man, how did I make those decisions? Those were so big and so risky. Enter into those Man, we talked about so much. I'm flipping through my notes here. Uh, I love the section that Josh talks about high consideration products. So for my affiliates that are listening and affiliate managers that are listening, really think about not just your affiliate channels, driving traffic and converting a sale, but what part are they playing in Mindshare for that consumer of that brand? What part of the picture are they painting and are they doing it well? And so there's this, there's a consumer journey that happens and affiliate marketing is part of that. And those users are part of that. Uh, But what are you saying about it? Is it solely about conversion and getting the sale right now? Or is it painting the picture of the whole brand or a piece of the picture that that brand needs, needs to paint? The importance of social proof we talked about. And then why is affiliate marketing important to them? And that's another thing I really want you to take from this is, Definitely, it's generating qualified traffic, and that direct-to-consumer is giving them really good signals on products and the marketing that they're doing, but it's also diversifying the traffic so that they can find pockets of opportunity. So that curiosity, that that willingness to test from Josh and, and his team, and they're using the affiliate channel to do that. So they're looking through that to find pockets that work really well. And then what can we learn from that and what can we do? So if you're wondering, should I get into affiliate marketing? Definitely look at your affiliates and those publishers in your program and those publishers not yet in your program as another way to test an audience, a, a, a message, a product, a tactic, a campaign to a different audience. And, and that gives you, you know, potentially thousands of different tests at any one moment. So you can learn what your consumers are responding to, what are the good consumers and where they're at. Lastly, why he, uh, you know, chose an agency. And it's one of the big benefits of working with an agency as opposed to building a, a team in-house is the diversity of thought. So you not only get access to the team managing your account, but the successes, the failures, the tests, the things that did work, the things that didn't work from all of the clients 
and he he really demonstrated that that well. So if you're wondering, you know, should I hire an agency? That's definitely something to consider. It's very hard to learn in isolation, and uh, with an agency like ours, there are hundreds of tests going on at any given time, if not thousands that we get to pull together as a team and learn from. So Josh, thank you so much. If you guys want to continue the conversation with Josh, you can go to his LinkedIn profile and I will include that in our show notes, but it is linkedin.com, Josh Reed, and you will be able to, to find him there. Josh, thank you again. Really appreciated this time. It's always great to have a client on our podcast. Now, if you're listening to this podcast and you found it very useful and, and helpful and you enjoyed today's episode, please give it a share. Go on Facebook and all the socials and share this podcast. If you know someone who would benefit from this one specifically, just send that over to them individually. And it would really go a long way to help us get the word out about this podcast. If you took a moment and you gave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts, player, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, and the podcast player of your choice. And again, if you need help making sure your Q3 and Q4 plans are dialed in and going to be as successful as they possibly can, we would love to help you with an audit and a strategy roadmap. And you can get information about that by going to get help at jvcommerce.com. Well, thank you all for listening. If you have ideas for further shows or further guests, please let us know at that email address. Again, get help at jvcommerce.com. Thank you. <laughs>